This is what's called a stepped wedge cluster randomised control trial. It's actually about making every day really meaningful and purposeful. Even conventional or complementary medicines weren't working for them. Something is going on in the kinds of spaces that we are building. They kept trying to find something else. Think. Think Health on 2SER 107.3. Hi, welcome to the show. Ellen Leibeter with you. Today, how communication can resolve critical incidents in hospital and... They're often working in difficult situations, particularly in rural settings, with poor equipment. They have to attend to women in the middle of the night with no lights, so by torchlight. The importance of skilled birth attendants in developing countries. Last week on the program, we discussed the importance of freestanding midwifery units in Australia. This story will make a lot more sense if you hear last week's show, so go and download episode 29 and come back. Freestanding midwifery units are for healthy women expecting to have an uncomplicated birth, and they are staffed by midwives only. If a woman does experience complications like gestational diabetes or a slow labour, they will need to transfer to hospital where they can be seen by an obstetrician. Australia currently has 17 such units, and midwives and communities around the country are calling for more, especially to promote birthing on country for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women. Babies born to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women are more likely to have a lower birth weight or be preterm than babies born to non-Aboriginal women. They also have a higher rate of perinatal mortality. So, could freestanding midwifery units help close the gap? Aboriginal women have babies younger. What happens is that for places such as remote parts of Northern Territory and Western Australia, women are... Um, airlifted to central, say for in Northern Territory, like go to Darwin or Alice Springs. Uh, there has been some models set up where they have they get their own midwives in a caseload model, so they get some continuity. They get to a familiar face while they're out of their own community. But for many of these young girls, it's first time away from home. Their family can't afford to go. I mean, they don't have that sort of money, and they can't afford to go. They're up alone. They're often frightened worried because when you start to look at um, many of these young women from remote communities they it's English is sometimes their second language so for these young women it's a very isolating and emotionally difficult time I mean giving birth for the first times a difficult time enough in a woman's life without having good support around you. As we discovered last week, moving hours away from your home to give birth is a scenario typical of women living in rural and remote Australia. However, it is even more pronounced among Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women. Donna Hartz has pointed out Aboriginal women are younger, usually speaking English as a second or even third language, and are likely to face institutional racism when they do give birth in the big smoke. Donna is a research fellow with the Poach Centre for Indigenous Health. And Katzenham has asked me to speak on their behalf. Katzenham is the Congress of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Nurses and Midwives. Donna also has Camilla Roy heritage. We had a midwife present at one of our state New South Wales state conferences a few years ago 
and she talked about the story of a, a young girl coming from Adelaide back up to the lower part of Northern Territory. The bus brought her up there. So this is a young teenager with a brand new baby in summer temperatures in the middle of Australia being dropped off on the bus at a place that resembled a town, probably a tree in a shack, to wait for somebody to come and pick her up whenever. I mean, this is happening in Australia now. It's something we certainly take for granted in urban Australia, the right to choose where we give birth and to have friends, families and partners supporting us during that time. But for many Aboriginal women, this joyous moment is stressful and lonely. And you can add premature babies to the list of negative health outcomes that stress causes. And it's not just the stress of knowing you should move to a hospital to have your baby. Indeed, many women will hide from health services so they can choose to birth at home. It's actually the stress that comes when those same health services knock on your door and read you the Riot Act. The other Aboriginal evidence that's come out of this study is that I'd never heard of before. I mean, over 10 years of work in Aboriginal Australia, I've heard some pretty shocking things. But this was where the manager of the local health service knocked on the door and threatened a, a mother if she didn't move to the regional centre. She was, in the, the last weeks of pregnancy, preparing to move, not, not thinking that she would stay behind, but threatened with the child welfare department and said that her child would be under scrutiny because, her, because the women, woman hadn't moved already. It's actions like these that have been described as the pregnancy Gestapo in a recent study by Leslie Barclay. Leslie is an emeritus professor from the University of Sydney. Not wanting to leave your family and not having enough money to do so, these are all fringe issues, of course, that are applicable to Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal women in rural and remote Australia. But for Aboriginal women in particular, the most distressing part of moving to birth is the fact that they are removed from their traditional country. Donna Hartz explains why birthing on country is important. It's a concept where culture, tradition, spirit, biological needs is all comes together in, in a way that is uh, meaningful to the women and is safe and is appropriate. So that often means that they're able to, if they're not on their own country, that the model of care that they're in is, is culturally appropriate. You know, they, they've got Aboriginal people or Aboriginal health workers um, supporting them. Um, that Their needs are met and that they have a sense of self-determination in that. Katzenam released a new position statement on birthing on country in March this year. The statement is critical of the slow progress to close the gap between Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal health outcomes and says that pregnancy and early childhood are critical periods to do so. Katzenam says that providing services that promote birthing on country will improve maternal and infant outcomes because of the important connection between land and birthing. In practice, these services would be more inclusive of traditional practices and be community-based and governed. The 2010 National Maternity Services Plan also recommends that birthing on country programs be piloted around Australia, but those plans have stalled. Although these sorts of culturally appropriate services are applicable in urban areas as well. Sue Kilday is a professor of midwifery at the University of Queensland. She's part of a team that is setting up an urban birth on country model in Brisbane. 
certainly in Brisbane, where we're setting up what we'd like to be the urban birthing on country exemplar model of care. So we're moving towards all those things that underpin the evidence base. So 24-7 care from a, a, a primary midwife working within a midwifery group practice care alongside by uh, Aboriginal maternal infant health care workers. Uh, we've got an overarching um, Indigenous governance through the steering committee because we're doing it in partnership with a hospital and two Aboriginal community-controlled health organisations. So we're trying to put the package of birthing on country together for the women in our area. And Sue says they are not the only ones pushing for the change. Burke out in New South Wales want to be able to do it. Tennant Creek want to be able to do it. Manangrida and Wadair, two remote communities. Galawinku, um, Yarrabah, there's so many places that want to be able to do it. Freestanding units are beneficial in these towns because providing 24-7 access to obstetrics is difficult due to cost and workforce issues. Caseload midwifery care, on the other hand, is much easier to deliver. The push to have these units is backed up by research in New Zealand and Canada. Both countries have multiple freestanding units geographically separate from obstetric services that are highly frequented by their Indigenous populations. And both have much better health outcomes for their Indigenous populations. Sue says that giving birth back to these communities has benefits that extend beyond the obvious. I'd bet money that it's going to save the Australian government money and that it's going to help close the gap and it's going to address improved maternal infant health outcomes with many more broader benefits like employment for Indigenous women, education for um, Indigenous women. Although, are these units really the right solution when Aboriginal women face poor health outcomes as it is? Aboriginal women do have a lot of uh, health difficulties, especially when they're pregnant. They've got high rates of mortality and morbidity. Surely, in some cases, being in hospital is in these women's best interests. Yeah, you would think so. However, we have to realise that there's a huge... It's very complex in in terms of why these um, women have such comorbidities but with the the comorbidities it's more complex than just putting someone in hospital when they're pregnant it's uh, it's about all the things I've been talking about and trying to to support women to be self-determining listening to them finding out what their needs are providing a culturally appropriate culturally safe environment and when you go back to that birth on country concept that's what that is all about you know ensuring that the the women will want to come there and that they're they're being listened to so in terms of should they be in hospital I'm, I'm sure that every woman that has any comorbidities whether they're aboriginal or not would choose the best and safest for them and their babies but that's their choice at the end of the day, this all comes down to a woman's right to choose where they give birth. And Donna says we are denying this right to too many women across Australia. Women should be able to make choices about where they give birth on being able to do what is natural and, and appropriate in an environment that they're choosing. So we're actually denying women a basic human right. If you'd like to find out more about that story, head to 2SER.com forward slash thinkhealth. You're listening to Think Health on 2SCR 107.3. Well, as we just heard, our maternity services in Australia aren't perfect, but they are nowhere near as dangerous as the maternity services offered in Cambodia. 
Imagine having to give birth in the dark with only the most basic tools to help if something goes wrong. That's the reality for birthing women in Cambodia. It's not as bad as it once was, but as Sam King explains, there is still a long way to go. The life of a midwife in Cambodia is challenging. There's not enough midwives, so there's a chronic shortage of health workers. Their working conditions Mm. are challenging. So they may be not only short-staffed, salaries are very low, sometimes they don't get paid. They're often working in difficult situations, particularly in rural settings, with poor equipment and no drugs, sometimes no light, sometimes the generator hasn't, there's no petrol or the power goes down. They have to attend to women in the middle of the night with no lights, so by torchlight. Dr Angela Dawson there from the University of Technology Sydney's Faculty of Health. I wanted to paint you a picture here of the true importance of skilled birth attendants. They're one of the unsung heroes of any society, and nowhere is this more apparent than in the Southeast Asian nation of Cambodia. Cambodia is one of the poorest countries in Southeast Asia. 36% of the population live under the poverty line, and it also has one of the largest youthful populations in the region. So one in three Cambodians are aged from 15 to 25. So that's a huge group of people at the bottom end of the population. And this young population is one of the scars still left from the Khmer Rouge genocide in the 70s in which almost one in four Cambodians were killed. But since that period, the population has been increasing. And although that stabilised about 10 years ago, what's been interesting in terms of the youthful population is the increasing adolescent fertility rate. And that has been increasing faster than any other nation in Southeast Asia. So you've got a country with a massive fertility rate and poor access to maternal health care. And what you're left with is a nation that in the year 2000 had one maternal death for every 200 live births. And what's even more shocking was the infant mortality rate around 90 per 1,000 live births, almost 1 in 10. And that's the same as it was in 1985, no difference at all, in over a decade. But around the year 2000, Cambodia committed to Millennium Development Goal 5 to reduce neonatal mortality by three quarters. And that's when things started to change. Today, that figure, 90 infant deaths per thousand life births, has fallen to 24. So what happened? This is first of all related to the policy imposed by the government that uh, all women should uh, go to uh, deliver their baby in the health facility. This is Dr. Pondara It speaking to us from Phnom Penh. He did his PhD on maternal health care in Cambodia at the University of Technology, Sydney. And there is an improvement of the infrastructure, including roads, you know, because now we have a very, there is no problem related to geographic areas like before. And there is some uh, a policy to restrict TBA to, to give uh, the birth, you know, of the baby at home. So in case you missed it there, there's a policy to restrict TBAs giving home births. Now, TBAs, that's traditional birth attendants. They're untrained midwives relied upon to perform home births in Cambodia. According to the Phnom Penh Post, in 2002, TBAs delivered almost two-thirds of Cambodia's babies. 
They'd use techniques like speeding up labor by pushing on the mother's abdomen and pulling on the baby's head, or stretching the vulva by hand. I've read reports of TBAs cutting the umbilical cord with a rusty razor or a piece of bamboo, and then just sort of tying it up with string. I mean, not all TBAs did this, but it was completely unregulated. The governor of the district, they prohibited all TBA to contact the baby at home because they... There are a lot of uh, women who, who die during their malpractices, you know. So to move away from this, Cambodia's been replacing TBAs with skilled birth attendants and encouraging women to give birth at health facilities. And if you look at the numbers, it's making a huge difference. Skilled birth attendants save lives because they, they know what to do. They know how to prevent bleeding. They can care for a woman. They can deliver needed commodities, drugs to prevent bleeding, to prevent high blood pressure. These midwives are highly important to mm. any society. But there is still a long way to go. There is about a 70% coverage rate of skilled birth attendants in rural areas with that higher in urban areas. Yet there's still high numbers of deaths that are unacceptable because they're preventable. Women die of, of bleeding after birth, we call that postpartum hemorrhage, and they die of high blood pressure or preeclampsia, which can be easily addressed through the use of, of drugs. Even though there's some improvement in some urban and rural area, but still there are some problems related to the eastern part of the country, such as Ratnakiri, Mondolkiri, Kerches. Ratnakiri and Mondolkiri are some of the more remote provinces in the east of Cambodia. There are still... Uh, Improvement, you know, you know, yeah. For example, uh, now we 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 have uh, even ninety five percent, for example, mother receive AMC from a skill providers, but in some uh, provinces, it's not uh, this kind of uh, number, but uh, has increased all also sixty uh, or seventy percent as well. And a sixty to seventy percent increase is not bad. But hey, now, this is where it gets more complicated. The poor pay of these midwives, um, as we found in our study, resulted in unnecessary interventions. You know, so some people, they try to do some sort of uh, medical intervention so that they can... Uh, earn extra money from the patients. Because although Cambodia has a public health system, women pay money for additional services and sometimes those services aren't actually needed. So in the case of a woman who can deliver normally, sometimes extra interventions are provided that are not needed that may have you know, a knock-on effect. So there might be an epidural or a episiotomy, a cut that's not needed but is delivered in order to make more money. And I don't want to start moralising here. When you need to feed your family, you do whatever it takes. But this illustrates why Cambodia is pushing to move births out of the home and into better health facilities with properly trained midwives and skilled birth attendants who aren't under as much pressure. The government recognises this and um, has a, a very good strategic plan to improve the quality of, of maternal care. So increasing the number of midwives is number one. And in 2012, the first cohort of midwives graduated from a three-year university-level midwifery course. So that's the beginning of an exciting time and of you know improvement in, in midwifery. 
also improving the quality of, of supervision of those midwives and supervision of lower carter staff members involved in looking after women right in the community and improving the, the quality of um, health services themselves, providing more equipment, ensuring better procurement and distribution of, of drugs and, and equipment. So, Pondara, Cambodia's made incredible improvements to maternal health care, quartering neonatal mortality and maternal deaths from 2000 to 2016. Are you optimistic that things will continue to improve? Yes, I hope so, because the National Maternal Health Centers, their work, uh, they try their best work with all the policymakers and implementers in the health facility. And they also work in collaboration with all the NGOs who are involved in maternal and newborn health care in Cambodia. So I think uh, in the future, we will uh, reduce more maternal mortality as well as the developed country in the near future, yes. Dr Pondara It, ending that story from Sam King. You're listening to Think Health on 2SER 107.3, online at 2SER.com or on your favourite podcast app. In Australia, approximately 10% of hospital patients will suffer an avoidable critical incident, and almost all of these are related to errors in communication. Critical incidents are accidents that cause harm to patients that could otherwise be avoided. To discuss how linguistics can meet health research to fight this communication breakdown, producer Nina Kopel spoke with Diana Slate. Diana is a professor of applied linguistics in the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences at the University of Technology, Sydney. So let's call the patient Mandy. She was admitted to a local hospital, it was in Australia, to give birth to a second child. She suffered from schizophrenia but had been coping with regular use of antipsychotic medication. Her psychiatrist's care was, was very well managed and she was in a, um, was, and it was managed by a community sort of mental health team and she saw a psychiatrist regularly. Then she got pregnant. Her psychiatrist wrote verbal and written handovers to her GP Her GP then, when she was going to hospital to have the baby, was coordinating with the obstetric ward, but it did not pass on to the hospital the medication that she was on and the treatment she was on. So this meant that the clinical team in hospital that was dealing with managed delivery didn't understand the significance of her condition or her medication. So although Mandy did take it with her, the clinical staff didn't know. So what happens is she had a relapse of her mental health, she was transferred to the mental health unit, And then, once again, the transfer from the obstetric unit to the mental health unit didn't include anything about the the medication, nor her condition, her mental health condition. That was left out completely. So after the birth of the child, she became psychotic again. She ingested a corrosive substance, was secluded and restrained. For 10 days after admission, she had a cardiac arrest and died. And so it was a series of handover That really was a communication issue. So your research, a lot of that has been based on you and other people sitting in hospitals and watching those interactions happen. That's right. What was it that you found? Well, what I realised, first of all, is that as a communication specialist or a linguist, we can't do it alone. We can't just go in there and observe and try to be arrogant enough or presumptuous enough to be able to understand that very complex phenomenon of healthcare. We recorded... 82 patients 
across four emergency departments in New South Wales and ACT, and we recorded their journey. The overwhelming finding was that the medical profession, understandably, and I'm not being at all critical of anyone in the emergency departments, I'm constantly impressed by their extraordinary level of expertise and the conditions from which they work under. But what we found was the lack of attention to the interpersonal needs of the patient. The common response was, we are too busy. We have not got time. Isn't, isn't that a valid point, though? Don't, do they not just have time to have those personal interactions? That's right. That, what we found is, and this is after our study of three years, we've got the largest database in the world now of authentic interactions. So just before I answer that question, this, the, what our findings were based on was 82 patients. We transcribed verbatim exactly the interactions. But what's important about the actual recordings is what clinicians say they do is often very different than what they do. And it's not that they're being deceptive, it's just when you're in interaction, it's very spontaneous and you, re- you rarely have a chance to look back and actually reflect on how you interacted in that process. So what we found is that the more effective interactions really involve the patients being listened to. So for example, even that very basic question, now what do you think's wrong with you? And if the patient was really listened to, then it's much more likely to reach an effective diagnosis. And then with an effective diagnosis and the patient feeling validated, they're more likely to comply with the treatment. Much less likely to have unnecessary readmissions, much less likely to have negative patient outcomes. In a sense, at a cost to the system. Is this as simple as saying we should treat our nurses and doctors better? That's, look, I think that the health systems around the world are chronically underfunded. It's increasing exponentially. So often, many of them don't need really an emergency department, but because it is free, they, they go there because they might financially feel like there's no choice. So yes, doctors are under enormous stress, but pouring more funds obviously would really help. But I think many governments would say that is a very tough one. I believe... We must have more durable electronic health records, and there's been a lot of work trying to get that. I am stunned that around the world, despite how many billions have been on an attempt to get durable and really effective forms of patient records and electronic patient records, it's still not a very effective process. Anyway, some countries do it much better. Hong Kong, I think, has got a much better system and a system that's they're pouring money into improving that. However, there's often very little relationship between what is spoken to the patient and what's written down. We're now doing training. We've developed training based on the authentic. So we've got training for medical and medical handover. We've also got training for nurses on involving patients in the handover process. And what would that look like? What the training would look like. What the, the, what the handover would look like. That's an interesting thing. There was somebody called Peter Garling headed a special commission of inquiry into acute health services in New South Wales a couple of years ago. He stated that the quality of patient clinician communication in New South Wales hospitals was unacceptable in a civilised society, let alone a system of patient-centred healthcare. He recommended, as one of his many recommendations, that handovers should be at the bedside. That we can't have patient-centred care as our main policy platform around Australia in every state as it is internationally without the patient even hearing the information that's being handed over. And as you can imagine, with handovers, if the patient is there, they can say, no, no, sorry, you got it wrong. I haven't had two panadine in in the last, which there was a particular example which actually came up in the data. No, 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 I haven't had the panadine fault yet. So 
they can correct it, and they often do. So what, that, what he recommended was that all handovers, as much as possible, be done at the bedside involving the patient. So what are you working on now? What's the next thing that you're looking into to try and bridge this, this communication gap in our, in our healthcare system? If you use that kind of, what I've been talking about, a sense like even a metaphor of the patient journey, we've gone from patient-clinician interactions in emergency department looking at handover across the, the hospital. What we realised then was also critical, was what happens to the patient when they leave hospital. But when they leave and get discharged, are they given accurate information? Is it clear what they need to do? Is the information handed in terms of elderly patients to the aged care services, etc.? So we've just started looking at patients' actual discharge consultations. So not just looking at the medical records, which are important, what happens to them, where do they go, but actually recording the consultations, the discharge consultations, whether it be from, with a nurse or with the doctor to the patient, interviewing the patient afterwards, finding out whether they actually have understood. But one hospital that another member of the team is doing research in, 70% of patients were not getting their, are not getting their discharge summaries. So at some hospitals, there's a rule that you have 48 hours after the patient leaves. So by definition, the patient can't be given it. And so what happens often, there's big gaps. The patient isn't really aware of what they're supposed to be doing. So there's gaps. It's not incompetence, it's the system complexity. But there needs to be system changes and much better electronic health records. Diana Slade from the University of Technology, Sydney, speaking with producer Nina Kobel. If you'd like to find out more about anything you heard today, visit us to ser.com forward slash thinkhealth. As always, if this show has raised any concerns, go and see your GP. Think Health is produced with the support of the University of Technology Sydney Faculty of Health. Remember to click subscribe if you've enjoyed the program today so you won't miss a moment. And if you want to think even more, we're just one show into SER's Think programming. You can check out Think Sustainability and Think Digital Futures on all podcast apps. I'm Ellen Liebeter. Thanks for your company. Thanks for your company.